we don't have to do everything, but we do have to collect the data and present some theoretical solutions and to speak out with a collective voice together. Hi, my name's Dr. Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Welcome to another episode of Finding Fair Health. During these rather bizarre and challenging times, today I'm speaking to Dr. Jonathan Tomlinson, who's a GP in Hackney. This is one of the hardest hit areas in the country for coronavirus. And I'm really, really interested to talk to Jonathan today about his experiences in Hackney, but also what we can do as health professionals going forward with coronavirus. So Jonathan, how are you doing? Great to have you here. Thanks, Rachel. Um... Fortunately, I'm doing fine, thanks very much, which is good for the practice and good for my patients. But some things are definitely much more challenging than others. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the practice, we've, we've been taking precautions um, really right from the very beginning, and I think we were quick to act. We sealed off one part of the practice uh, for anybody suspected of having coronavirus and turned it into what's called a hot hub, uh, which meant that there was a separate entrance um, and to the, to the building. Um, all uh, communal areas were sealed off. We got builders in to build uh, new walls in the practice. Um, so there was absolutely no crossover between staff or patients coming in there. Um, and it meant that very, you know, it, within a couple of days, we were able to separate anybody suspected of having an infection from everybody else and protect patients and staff um, and as a result touchwood um, we've had no staff who've had infections that we know of um, um, some that may have done but but almost certainly not contracted at work and we've just started doing routine care for patients with long-term conditions this week um, which is taking off much better than we expected so those are some of the good things yeah so you're trying to get back to thinking about how you can help with those long-term conditions because those were some of the things that I've been particularly worried about by not seeing a lot of these patients over the last few weeks about their routine work we've not been doing some of that and that can have significant impact on people's health in the long term yeah, I completely agree. We we were quite quick, I think, to realise that coronavirus wasn't going to go away quickly. Um, the 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 idea that, unfortunately, I mean, the the idea that we would get it under control, and that we that a vaccine would somehow 
solve the problem in a matter of uh, months seemed so unlikely uh, to us that we all of our preparations were done with the idea that we had to be making long-term plans and this would be a way of working not just for a few weeks or even for a few months but potentially um, for years in the, in the future um, and if you know having worked in a deprived practice for a long time we're well aware that our patients are likely to have the kinds of illnesses that patients in less deprived areas have maybe 20 years younger and we're used to patients dying from long-term conditions in their 50s which is the kind of age that our patients have been dying with coronavirus as well and so we know that saving lives in general practice is about caring for everybody's long-term conditions and it's about having good access for people with mental health problems and we felt very strongly from the beginning that we couldn't stop that just because of coronavirus. We had to make people safe, but also continue to save lives in the way that general practice does. Um, and I'm very glad that we did that because I think other people are beginning to realize that um, they've got to make long-term plans um, and you can't just put things off. We've had patients already having, a couple, two of my patients have had, one's had a stroke and one had a heart attack because of uncontrolled hypertension. So these are real life-threatening issues that don't go away just because coronavirus is here. Yeah. Are there any changes that because of coronavirus you think you're going to think, right, let's, let's stick with these? Um, okay. So we were already doing a system uh, where we ring patients before calling them in. So we've been doing that for about a year before this started. Uh, we, we were doing very, very few video consultations. And actually now that we've got capacity to do that, um, we're finding that the difference between a good phone consultation um, that a video makes, in other words, that space between a phone and a face-to-face -face consultation is really very small. Um, and I was looking at data from GP at Hand, which is a, a, an organization or a business that's set up to support GPs um, managing patient access. And they've they've been looking at the data in, in a lot of detail and they've averaged 30% online consultations, 30%, 35% telephone uh, and the rest is face-to-face -face or home visit and maybe just one or two percent by video and that doesn't surprise me at all and that's that's what they've sort of settled down uh, to after using or offering video for quite a long time. So the, the enthusiasm I think a lot of people have had for video will very likely wane when you realize that there aren't many cases where it's better than face-to-face -face or telephone. Um, so, that's, so the changes in that respect aren't particularly big. The, the main way you mitigate or re reduce risk of exposure is, is not having people gathering in groups. Which So one of the saddest changes is is that the waiting room is completely empty um, and a full waiting room you might think well that's a sign of a poorly designed system where people shouldn't have to wait but actually um, it's a social space where people enjoy meeting each other um, and um, it's quite a happy place as well at least in, in our practice and I think a lot of GP practices will say that because it's part of the community it's not like a hospital waiting room which is um, 
doesn't have that same kind of community feel. So that's quite sad. And I can't see a time where you can justify having a busy waiting room again. Um, other changes, uh, there's a lot more talking to colleagues, uh, which is nice. So if any of us do want to convert a phone call to a face-to-face -face, um, contact, then we've made a rule where you have to speak to another clinician. And that's, that helps us to, to know that we're all making decisions that are reasonable, that nobody is acting differently from everybody else. And that, that's important because whatever you do potentially could affect all your colleagues. So none of us are working in isolation. And if you take unnecessary risks, you might be putting your colleagues at, um, at risk um, because you, you might then get an infection which you give to somebody else. And it also gives us a chance to think about, is, is this the right clinical decision? Um, have I got the diagnosis right? Would you manage it this way? And for learning, it's wonderful. I mean, it's the kind of thing a good team would want to do anyway, but always seems to be too busy. And it's, so it's, that's really, really good. And so patients are safer, I think, because of this. You know, you know you're getting a second, third, you know, a tenth opinion <laughs> when, you, when you come in. And that, I think, is, is reassuring. So that's really positive. Everybody's looking out for each other. Everybody's, you, you can't walk past somebody without them saying, kind of, how are you doing? Um, anything I can do to help. So that sense of mutual support is fantastic. Yeah, that's great to hear. And how much of that are you planning to carry on with going forward? Do you think that's a lot of that's going to, is there to stay? Well, that's, a, that's yeah, I like the, the way you phrase it. How much are we planning to carry on with? Because these, these things don't happen unless you plan for them to happen. Um, so, um, yeah, it makes me think that we haven't planned for it to happen this way. Um, but we haven't yet planned for it to continue, um, you know, and in, indefinitely. It just seemed for the time being that that works well. But um, it's a good point. We should do some some planning. Um, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. um, so, Jonathan, in the in the news yesterday, um, we um, we saw that the Office of National Statistics have found that um, if you're living in an area of deprivation, you are much more likely to be affected by coronavirus and also die from coronavirus, um, which is, is rather shocking and depressing and sad to see. Um, I think many of us who have been interested in this at the start knew that this was a possibility and um, it very, very quickly became apparent that people living in areas of deprivation are most affected, not just of the disease, but also the the effects of lockdown and um, that effect on jobs, social security, etc. This has obviously made national news, but do you see this as an opportunity for us to do something about this? I do. Yeah, um, absolutely. So to give one example, um, one of my patients has five work colleagues who have died um, and they all worked as cleaners or security in the same business and I don't know anyone who's died fortunately apart from my patients but but touch with none of my family or colleagues have died from coronavirus and so although some have had it quite badly but but none of them have been that sick and the people that that died all work in public facing jobs they all had to get to work using public transport so they didn't have cars some of them had to take two even three buses at least one of these 
people had symptoms and knew they shouldn't be working but couldn't afford not to go to work it, it made the difference of whether she could afford to feed her family and pay her rent or not and the risk of catching and dying from coronavirus is related to your ability to take precautions and you know we're we're i'm a gp and we were able to you know shut the doors of the surgery and tell patients they had to ring and they weren't allowed to walk into the building you know instantly uh, we we were able to have doctors who were self isolating because of symptoms or family with symptoms working remotely from home immediately um uh, my children's school was closed and my wife was able to afford to stay at home and look after the, the children and, and we didn't have to worry about going hungry. So we were, um, you know, we were incredibly fortunate compared to my patients. And much as I have sympathy for doctors' campaigns for PPE and, and so on, um, I've lots of patients who have far more human contact than I do. You know, I, I can control exactly which patients I have contact with and how close they get to me and how much time I spend with them. I'm, I have total control over that. People who work as security bus drivers, as carers, as delivery men and women, as cleaners, they don't have any of that control. And, and they're having dozens of, of you know, face-to-face -face human contacts a day and with little or no PPE at all. And then they've got to get on a crowded bus or a tube to get home. So I consider myself incredibly fortunate and I'm not working in ITU. So I'm not frontline in that, in that respect. And, and clearly hospital doctors and nurses are in a very, very different situation from primary care. But I'm in the situation where I know my patients lives and i you know I'm, I'm looking after or grieving patients who've died suddenly and unexpectedly before their time who i've known for for many years and i think being aware of just how fortunate i am um, as a doctor and how fortunate we are as a family has brought home the the social determinants of health more more acutely than any other time in my clinical career yeah so the classical stuff that we think about health, so things like you mentioned PPE and you mentioned ITU, but is this about that stuff? So is it about making sure that we've got great ITUs across the country, making sure we've got lots of ventilators? Is it all about PPE or is it, about, is it also about some of those things that you're talking about, so the social determinants of health? Well, it's, it's clearly, it, it's about both, but not, not to the same extent or the same degree so if we think about determinants of health and upstream and downstream determinants so downstream determinants is last minute uh, rescue and salvage of people who are critically sick um, so as far as coronavirus rescue and salvage of the critically sick is the ITU care and ventilators and hospital critical care um, upstream determinants of health uh, is is prevention and so prevention in terms of coronavirus um, 
we most people are thinking about lockdown and hand washing and hygiene and wearing masks uh, but if you look at where the deaths have happened so the most you know twice as many deaths have happened in the poorest communities compared to the wealthiest in this country um, and that's not to do with the supply of protective equipment or how much people are wearing masks that's to do with how healthy those people are to start with so how much they're able to resist and fight the infection to begin with and how effectively they were able to self-isolate so data from the united states shows that the wealthier you, the wealthier you are the quicker you're able to stop going out um, and the more likely you are to be able to work from home so taking precautions in that respect but we also know that the 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 poorer you are, the more likely you are to have the underlying health conditions that make you likely to die from coronavirus. So things like hypertension, heart disease, uh, lung disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, and so on. Added to which we know, um, or at least think it's very likely that black and minority ethnic people carry an additional risk related to perhaps genetic factors, almost certainly related to the fact that most carers, cleaners, bus drivers, street sweepers, security people also happen to be black and minority ethnic, but also to do with the likelihood that in a racist society, the people who are black and minority ethnic are likely to be pushed into taking more risks. So a report on racism in the NHS last year um, showed huge amounts of discrimination. So you can imagine if PPE is in short supply in a high risk hospital environment and there isn't enough to go around uh, and somebody has to go without, um, it doesn't take much stretch the imagination, you know, the ethnic minority staff members might be last in line for the PPE or pushed to the front of the queue to look after the coughing, homeless, drunk uh, patient that nobody else wants to look after, uh, placing them at greater risk. So which, whichever way you tend to look at it, whether it's to do with housing, nutrition, existing long-term conditions, uh, working conditions, um, racism, um, if you're poor, you're much more likely to die from coronavirus. So this is how you, to save the NHS, you deal with these things um, and then you stop people getting sick in the first place. Yeah, so where do you see your role in all of this then, Jonathan? Um, well, I'm one very small part of a bigger poll of concerned clinicians, but also primary care clinicians. So, I mean, I can't do much on my own. <laughs> I can do things like this and I can look after my patients and I can write... Um, you know, I can write a blog that, that people read that just highlights the, the concerns and I can speak out about it. So there's, there's an advocacy role to be done there. Um, I wanted to talk about Rudolf Virko um, at some point, maybe, maybe, maybe now. So he's, he was looking at another epidemic um, in 1846. It was an epidemic of a disease called typhoid um, in um, 
something called Upper Silesia, which I think is between Poland and Russia. And he was a young doctor who'd been given the responsibility of, of doing an investigation to look at the spread uh, of typhoid. And he identified that the people who would, were dying were poorly educated, poorly nourished, living in overcrowded, unsanitary accommodation and held in a state of ignorance by the church and poverty um, by the politicians. And he uh, said that if you want to solve the problem of death by typhus, you need to deal with nutrition, housing, sanitation, education, and fair taxation and employment. And, and he's famous for saying that um, politics is nothing but medicine on a large scale and that doctors have a duty to explain to politicians the relationships between social conditions and medical diseases. Um, and politicians have a duty to take action uh, to deal with that. And I, I very, I strongly believe that doctors, are, you know, are failing in that duty. Um, and in fact, we've got such a, a, a powerful voice at the moment. Everybody's listening to doctors. Um, every time you put on the news or open the paper, there are doctors talking about um, coronavirus. Um, but what are they talking about? They're talking about masks. They're talking about ITU, um, vaccines, testing as if it's all about medicine and technology. Um, and nobody's talking about the underlying social conditions that have made death by coronavirus such a serious problem. And why do you think we're not talking about this? So there, there's a lot of people obviously victims of poverty here. So why are we not responding to what the science is telling us? So, well, okay, so, so science itself doesn't tell us anything. So. So to, a, to a man or a woman with a medical degree, everything looks like a healthcare problem. Um, yeah. So the nature of medical education and, and culture and practice is, is that you tend to look at things through your own particular lens. And if, you, if you're a hospital doctor, then everything looks like a hospital medicine problem. And, and we're not hearing from GPs at all. You know, so much has been written about Nightingale hospitals and so little has been written about primary care. We're seeing millions of patients um, every week and, and the Nightingale Hospital has seen maybe what 50 patients in mm -hmm. total. So primary care really does have a duty to speak out and, and medicine is not science. Medicine is informed by science but the practice of medicine is the practical application of science plus sociology plus economics plus culture plus the knowledge of um, communities and people and people's lives. Um, so I think scientists have got much too big a voice in this. Um, I think we live in a culture where we think that science has got the answers. Um, my kids are really into Marvel and um, uh, Marvel movies, but I think that's a good reflection of contemporary culture. We think that, you know, super scientist, um, uh, mega rich people will solve all our problems for us. Um, and that's kind of where we're looking and hoping um, the answers will come, um, but they won't. 
really, if you imagine you were the prime minister, Rachel, and who would you want on your team of advisors? I mean, you would want an epidemiologist and a virologist, but you would also want all these other ologists. Um, and you'd want representation uh, from the communities that are being affected. You know, you'd want the mayor of, of Hackney, you'd want bus drivers, you'd want cleaners, you'd want carers from care homes. Um, so it's, it's, science is being given far too big a, a role in this. If we expect science to come up with the answer, then we're behaving like eight-year-olds who are enthralled by Marvel. <laughs> yeah, okay. So as health professionals working in primary care, we should be doing our best to then, I, from what you're saying, is learn more and do more about, I don't know, do, try and do more advocacy and try and think more about social accountability. Yeah, of course. Um, easy to say, but it's quite hard to do. I think the the... There's a lost art of rhetoric, which is storytelling plus expertise um, plus facts um, and, and data. And so we need to kind of triangulate these, um, these three things. We need good stories from people who are affected and communities. And we need people with authority to, you know, to convince the public and the politicians about what we need to do. Yeah, and that, you know, we're not all good storytellers and we're not all experts and we're not all good on data. So we need to get all the, these different groups together to work and have a coordinated response. And you also need, a, a you know, a, an effective political party that's willing to take on board uh, all of this. And we don't have one in this country so far as I'm aware. Um, I'm not sure that, that Labour have quite got their... Um, their themselves organized or have policies that would really support this so obviously there's a political there's political solutions here um but there's also um as you're saying the role of the clinician how how much as i, I know as as gps as primary care health professionals is is this our, our job to think about this stuff we've got this unique role i suppose of this balancing the individual patient in front of us and um, also trying to think of the health of our whole practice population and also the fact that I suppose that GPs sit in quite a unique place within the community, kind of away from secondary care in, in small pockets of the population, can get to know their individual patients and their practice population as a whole very, very well indeed. What simple things can we do going forward, Jonathan, do you think? What do you think that, if, so for example, anyone listening to this who thinks, right, I want to go away and do something about this, and there are some simple things you'd suggest. Okay, at a practice level, talking about your patients regularly. So collaboration has got to be a really important thing. So collab collaborating with your colleagues so you all know what's going on, you know which patients are at risk and who's vulnerable. We know that treating patients' long-term conditions effectively saves lives in general practice. So we, sh we shouldn't neglect that because of coronavirus. So we should really get on top of making sure that we're taking care of people's diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and lung disease and taking care of their, their mental health. So we mustn't neglect that. Uh, in terms of advocacy, um, it's got to be about making having networks. Um, so Deep End General Practice is a, is a fantastic network of DPs working in deprived areas all over the world. Um, and that's a brilliant way of, of working together to have a voice. And, and we should all be doing what deep end general practice is doing so 
you know, collecting evidence, educating one another and speaking out with a collective voice. Um, you know, as Rudolf Verko said, the job of the, the doctor is, is to highlight the problems and propose theoretical solutions. And the job of the politician is to take action to deal with these, these problems. Yeah, so I think we don't have to do everything, but we do have to collect the data and present some theoretical solutions and to speak out with a collective voice together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I agree with that. Um, I think there are little things we can do, though. As you say, going in and seeing our patients in the community, having those individual one on one conversations can actually make a huge difference, as well as all those big things like advocacy, education, evidence. It's important to recognise the the role of the health professional in in the action. No, I agree. I think on, on, a, on a small level, but profoundly important is is that general practice is is about caring um you know it's not just the application of of medical science and the controlling of blood pressure it's being with somebody um so i have a confession uh to make that i visited a patient yesterday who wasn't sick but she has been very sick uh and she has been recently bereaved um her son died uh, very young from from diabetes and mental health problems combined but I went to visit her to have lunch with her which sounds extraordinarily dangerous um, but it was by mutual consent and we did sit at a distance and she had spent the whole morning cooking me a Caribbean rice and peas and and spicy fish and it was delicious and patients who are isolated and bereaved and have survived you know their own time on intensive care you know they've stared death in the, the face they know what it's like to be on a ventilator and they they know you know they've faced a life that wasn't worth living and nobody can live without meaningful human contact um and it was a lovely half hour that we spent together and really meaningful and people need and want that and i think sometimes doctors think that all they're doing is you know dishing out tablets and handing out advice but a lot of the time that you spend with patients even if it does involve those things there's something about care and attention that that is really healing um i think the way we are with our patients um makes them better you know sometimes as much as anything that we do to prescribe to them and there's good evidence uh, in a wonderful paper called caring effects by julian tudor hart and paul dieppe that simply phoning up patients with chronic pain from osteoarthritis reduced their pain and their need for medication um, considerably. You know, just the idea that your doctor cares about you and has you in mind and is willing to ring you up, um, especially when it's a doctor that that knows you, um, you know, makes a measurable difference to to people's quality of life. So we shouldn't forget that either. And that's amazing to think about because actually a lot, a lot. I, I know both of us have been ringing around our most vulnerable patients in um, our practice populations to um, see if they're doing okay and just checking in. And actually, it's it's good to know that the evidence suggests that that's actually a good thing in their health overall. Care and caring is is part of what we do, um, and that's that's another kind of counter to the idea that science will somehow save us. Um, 
you know, you need caring as well. And, you know, as I say, the motto of the Royal College of GPs is science with caring. And, and mm. we're big on the science, but uh, perhaps forget the, the caring, which is as important now as it, it is ever. Mm -hmm. I do finish with one book that you'd recommend to someone listening. What cool. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad I, I, I got a chance to think about it. So the book I've chosen is um, by James Agee, and it's called Now Let Us Praise Famous Men. Uh, with photographs by Walker Evans. What's what's really incredible about the book is that James Agee agonises for page after page about how much a privileged young white man can represent um, and do justice to the lives of people who are so unlike him. Um, and it makes it a very difficult book to read, Not not only does he just go off on one a, a bit like I can do sometimes but he just goes off on one for, for dozens of pages at a time before kind of returning uh, to the more standard kind of journalism but but it's full of things you know in, like falling in love with the people he's looking after and describing himself lying face down in the dirt in front of a church apologizing to the black congregation for the sins of racism for white people and given that this was written in 1930s America it's pretty extraordinary and obsessing over the little details of the inside of people's houses or the kind of shacks that they they lived in so it's it's an extraordinary insight and incredibly reflective and we you know I don't think we should be writing about um, the lives of our patients without thinking about how much we might be responsible for them and for the for their lives and for some of the inequalities and how grateful we should be for our own good fortune and James Agee does it better than anyone I think um, so that's my recommended book um, thanks Jonathan wow I can tell just from the way you're talking that this has had a really profound effect on you and really spoken to you um i do try and finish with my genie question so leave us with one magic wish in all of this chaos with coronavirus that you would you would ask the genie for crumbs uh, i'd like all primary care physicians across the world to reach out and speak up as rudolf verko told us to and to talk about social medicine and the social determinants of health and present to politicians the theoretical um, um, solutions for this problem and and to you know to work towards a sustainable progressive um, future uh, going on for the rest of our lives fantastic thank you jonathan um I will ask the genie to do that for us. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Thank Rachel. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.